What a wonderful day. Beautiful day. Happy Father's Day to the fathers out there. But our focus is going to be on our Heavenly Father this morning. And all the fathers in the room probably want that, don't we? We continue our study of the disciples' prayer, our Lord's teaching and instruction on how we should pray. One of the more difficult transitions in a person's life is when they mature from childhood to adulthood. The teenager moves from dependence and obedience to their parents to independence and directing their own lives. Uh, children become young men and women. I'm in the process of doing this as a father, uh, raising children, and I have very soon another teenager sitting on the front row coming into the picture. Uh, the struggle's real for both the parents and the children, correct? The young people want to be independent, but they also want the security and pleasures of provisions. The tension grows as they move from living under the full authority of their parents to a life of independence and being their own authority. At least this is how the world describes the transition to adulthood. However, I was thinking about our passage today, and I was struck by the difference between the true Christian and the world's thinking on coming of age. The world teaches that a young person becomes their own authority, but the Scripture teaches something totally different. The Scripture teaches a disciple of Jesus is never their own authority. They move from earthly parents to a heavenly father. The believer has a heavenly father that directs and provides and disciplines them their entire life. The disciple never lives isolated from their heavenly father. They are encouraged to always go to the father for everything, even their smallest needs. We see that in our prayer today, don't we? They are encouraged to obey their heavenly father till they go to be with him. This is why Jesus' message is so counter to our independent, self-governing world. I think we have a wrong view of authority in our culture and in our country and in our, in, in our community. We think of authority above us as a bad thing. We think authority over us is oppressive and burdensome. Some of this is because the authorities in our world have abused their roles so much that we have begun to rebel against all authority. We are a culture and a society that hates authority and dependence upon anyone. We all want to be autonomous, self-governing people. The world says, no one can tell me what I can do or what I can't do with my body. Many of the movements of today in our culture are overreactions to evil abuses of authority in the past. That's why there's this giant uh, problem with the, the roles of men and women in the church. It's this idea of a reaction to abuses, unfortunately. 
At the same time, we as a society are a narcissistic, hedonistic society. That is, we are self-focused pleasure seekers. Well, when you put those two together, that's a very scary thing. We desire pleasure for ourselves at all cost. And this is a very scary place to be. People who hate authority over us. And yet also people who are self-centered pleasure seekers. Not submitting to authority and being a self-seeking pleasure seeker is a scary thing. So when we come to a passage today about prayer, we have a really hard time even comprehending the depth of what our king desires for us. Jesus' teaching on prayer is opposite to this narcissistic, hedonistic thinking of our world. However, it is my desire that we can drop down into the world of the disciples and comprehend exactly what Jesus was calling his followers to do. Then we all should turn to the Lord and ask him to apply these truths to our lives and live for him. We need to think and pray the way Jesus exhorts his disciples to pray. We need to reject the world's rebellious thoughts and ways. Today we see disciples of Jesus depend upon their heavenly father for everything. We do it with hearts humbly committed to him and aware of our utter need of him for everything. I want to encourage all of you who are committed to Christ. We are never our own authority. We are under the Father's sovereign authority always. And everything we do is supposed to glorify our Heavenly Father. We aren't independent. And this is a great thing. Because our Father wants what's best for us. We see it in this prayer. Remember the setting for the sermon is King Jesus instructs his disciples how they should live in a fallen world until he establishes his kingdom on earth. Jesus gave his disciples a model prayer in our passage today. He, meant to he, he, he was meant to show them it was meant to show them how to pray. It was a prayer that was opposite to the self-righteous religious prayers of the Pharisees. It was also opposite of the futile, meaningless prayers of the pagans to their false gods. It was a prayer focused on God's glory and not the prayer's glory. It was a prayer with pro proper priorities. The prayer gave a glimpse into the new relationships disciples had with God. They could speak directly to Father, their Father God. They spoke with the new spiritual family in mind. I want you to notice throughout this passage, the pronouns are our and us. Our, as a corporate group, not individual mindset, but more of a corporal idea, our Father who is in heaven. It's not just me, it's us, our Father. It wasn't supposed to be the totality of everything disciples should pray, but it gave a good outline of the priorities in our prayers. 
The elements of the prayer included the disciples' humble desire for God's glory that we saw last week in verses 9 to 10. And then this week, we'll see the disciples' humble dependence upon God for their needs in verses 11 to 13. Last week, we saw that the the prayer unfolds in five sections. The exhortation to pray, the revealing address, the petitions for God's glory, the petitions for personal provisions, and then the required heart in prayer in verses 14 to 15. We covered these first, the first three last week, and we will finish the last two by God's grace today. It's important to note that just because the petitions turn from God's glory to personal needs, the overall glory of God is still in view. Even in our petitions, we ask for the purpose of glorifying God. There's an important implication that the, the, the disciples are supposed to ask the Father for these requests. It implies that God controls them all. Everything we ask for implies that God is the one that gives them and God is in control of those things. God is sovereign his God's sovereignty over everything is what we ask for. If we ask for food, we're acknowledging what? That he is Lord over all provisions. If we ask for forgiveness from God, then he is able to grant it, and he's worthy of holy obedience. If we ask for protection and deliverance from the evil one, and for, from evil, then he's sovereign over evil. It implies that God's in control of all these things. So the prayer for personal needs keeps the theme of God's glory going. And even the doxology that was probably added after the fact is appropriate. Because God is deserving and worthy of worship in light of prayer. So let's continue with this next section. Look at verse 11. The petitions for personal provision. There are three petitions for personal needs found here. First, I want you to notice, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. This first provision this personal need request is so counter to our culture and our thinking. We are an extremely prosperous society, aren't we? It's hard for us to drop down into the world of give us our daily bread when we have loads of bread just sitting out here when you walk up. Very few of us, if any, have concern over whether we will eat a meal today or tomorrow. If any of us. Maybe even for the next month. Even the poorest among us in our culture and in our community have something that we could either sell or we could go someplace that guarantees a meal. We are in an industrialized first world country, right? We throw away food daily in our country... We probably throw away enough food in our country that would feed the entire world during Jesus' day, day for a whole year. The amount of food we throw away in a day could probably feed them for a whole year. It's a staggering thought. And so when Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, we all say, well, that's not a prayer I need to pray for. See, we have a hard time even comprehending this. 
And food was, for Jesus' day, not a guarantee. Famines were not uncommon, Acts eleven twenty eight. So Jesus exhorts the disciples to pray, Father, give us this day our daily bread. It's important to note that just because we have so much, our dependence upon the Father and acknowledgement of His Lordship over our daily bread is still crucial. We still need our daily bread. And He is still Lord over everything we have. The world lies to us and tells us we are sovereign over our provisions. Listen to me, beloved, closely. God is the provider of everything. If He wants to turn off the rain, He can. If He wants to cause a famine today, He can. Even if He decides to allow the evil one to cause physical hardship to, on us, He can. He is ultimately sovereign over the economy. Do you hear me? Nations rise and fall because of His sovereign determination. And I don't care how strong we are and how powerful our economy is. God could in just a second make us poor. Every one of us. Satan, the god of this world, could bring about some destruction or whatever. And our Father in heaven is ultimately in control of even him. And he does nothing that God does not allow to happen. We eat our meals all too often with an air of prideful expectation. At the same time, we have expectations from God for way more than just our daily bread. Oh, is this not true? We have a problem saying, give us this day our daily bread, because we're thinking more along the lines of, please, Lord, help me have two cars, a house, and two healthy kids. I think we way too often are spoiled. And we think God is more like our genie rather than our sovereign God who wants us to depend upon Him and be satisfied with Him. Jesus will develop this concept of satisfaction in Him in the coming sections. You'll see it in Matthew 6. But the rebuke from Jesus to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3 comes to mind when it, with, with respect to our culture and our community, and especially the American Evangelical Church. He states this to the Laodicean church. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise to you, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. An eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say this, but I think much of evangelical Christianity looks just like the Laodicean church. We have so much wealth. And we take so much in 
ourselves and what we have accomplished that we failed to see that we really need God and we need to depend on Him. I'm not so sure sometimes the riches we have in our country aren't a curse more than a blessing. Giving us over to the idols of our heart, maybe. We have so much, but we all too often attribute our riches to our own prideful abilities. So we can't even get past this personal, this first personal request. We can't say, give us our daily bread, because we think, I've got all I need. Again, we need to be thankful for what we have. But hold on loosely to what we have. Sadly, I think the American church as a whole exports a false Christianity too to the world. That somehow Christianity is about how rich you are. Oh, shame on us. It isn't that. Maybe it's the riches in Christ. It's not what we have here, right? Dependence is a good thing, beloved. Listen, take note. That's what this prayer is saying. Recognition of our utter need of God's provision is a good place to rest. He is a good father. And he gives good gifts. He provides everything we need. We can trust him. We should seek him for our needs and thank him as we are provided for. He is our good father who rules from heaven, but he wants us to prize him over the stuff he has blessed us with. We must, listen closely, we must be very careful of putting too much stock in our own abilities. Yes, we have a responsibility to work, because if you don't work, you won't. But, we must remain aware that ultimately all we need and have is under the Father's sovereign hand, including every meal you eat, every breath of air you take. So the questions are this. Do we have a hard time remembering to pray before we start our day, our jobs, our meals, all of our responsibilities? Do we rush through our prayers for our meals because the box can be checked with a pretty quick prayer? Do we meditate more on our accomplishments or God's provisions? Do we start our day thinking, it's all about me getting what I want, or is it, Father, please provide my daily bread? Remember, Jesus doesn't specifically point to gratitude as a part of this prayer, but it's assumed, isn't it? Because if we ask for our daily bread and then receive it, what is the natural, automatic response? Thankfulness. Gratitude. Gratitude is what we're all about. And it also drives us back to pray again. Give us tomorrow's day of bread, too. So the first personal petition is, give us this day our daily bread. And next we come to, forgive us our debts. I think we could probably camp on this for a long time. All of us in the room need to hear this. Jesus says in Matthew six twelve, look in your Bibles. And forgive us our debts, as we also for, 
are, have, as we also have forgiven our debtors. The great need every disciple of Christ have is forgiveness. There are some important observations we need to point out concerning this prayer request. All disciples should express to their Heavenly Father regularly. Please forgive us our sins. First, notice, since this is the disciples' prayer, it isn't a forgiveness at conversion in view, that's in view. This is very important, and I want you to think on this. You're going to listen closely because it's very important. He's talking disciples. That means they've already been what? Declared right with God. They're righteous. They're, all their sins have been paid for in light of what's going to happen with Christ, correct? By faith in God, our sins are paid for. All of our sins are paid for at conversion. We're forgiven. We're declared right. But Jesus is talking to disciples, and he says, forgive us our debts. The forgiveness at conversion is all about standing and position with God in Christ. I don't believe Jesus is speaking about this forgiveness, that positional forgiveness. When a sinner becomes a disciple of Jesus, they repent and believe. They turn from their old way of life to trust and obey the Lord. Then, at that point of conversion, they're declared right with God. At the point God credits us or reckons us as righteous. All of our sins, past, present, future, have been paid for by the person and work of Christ. God declares us right with Him. We are delivered from the power and penalty of sin. Abraham believed, Genesis 15, 6, and it was credited to him as righteousness. At conversion, we are declared right. However, in this place, Jesus is speaking of the ongoing forgiveness that's necessary to maintain the joyful fellowship between the father and his adopted children. Listen closely. I'll say that again. I want you to hear Jesus is speaking of the ongoing forgiveness that's necessary to maintain the joyful fellowship between the Father and His adopted children. Disciples of Jesus aren't sinless until glory. And all disciples say, yeah, amen. We talked about it in Sunday school. Their sin after conversion is paid for. Christ paid for it. But they still sin. And these sins after conversion don't make us lose our salvation. Everybody agrees with that, right? They also don't condemn us to hell. But they break the fellowship of our relationship with God our Father. This is the forgiveness Jesus is speaking of in this request. It's a prayer for forgiveness and restoration of the relationship. To begin to fellowship and enjoy our Father. Again, we long to have this kind of relationship with God, don't we? We who have repented and believed, we want to enjoy our God and Father all the time, don't we? But sin causes that relationship to be hampered. Y'all know this is true, don't you? All of you that are believers, when you sin and you know you've sinned, how many of you are thinking, oh, I just want to go talk to God right now? None of us. The fellowship's broken. Sin causes us. To run and hide often. Second, 
The forgiveness is still sought even though the disciple had previously been declared right with God at conversion. What's that mean? We still are seeking this forgiveness. He says to the disciples, ask for forgiveness. Seek forgiveness. Father, forgive us our debts. We confess our sins. And he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 1 John 1, 9, right? Talking about believers. Asking for forgiveness is a common occurrence for the disciples of Jesus. This is a given because we will do what we don't want to do and not do what we want to do, as Paul states. More times than we can count, correct? Third, sin here is associated with debt. Debt is a financial term. It's a term associated with going past a requirement. We owe something because we did not accomplish what was required. If someone is in debt to someone, they were expected to do something and they failed to do it. So there's a debt for unfulfilled expectations and requirements. For example, if I go into a restaurant and I order a hamburger and I owe $5 and I look in my pocket and realize, "Uh uh-oh, I left my wallet at the house. I didn't bring my money. I have a debt to them. They gave me the hamburger. It was hopefully worth $5 because they gave me good food and they worked. I'm obligated to pay them. Jesus uses this kind of financial language to describe our sin against God. In light of all that God has done for us, we should do what? Love and obey him. There's an expectation it's what children should do. They should obey their parents. They should obey their father in heaven, correct? If we don't do it, what do we have? A debt. An unmet expectation that we should have. As disciples of Christ, we recognize that our sin is a debt. We did what we shouldn't do and we didn't do what we should have done. He's our father, our holy father. And he is worthy of perfect obedience and worship. He's worthy of wholehearted love and allegiance. But the disciple also recognizes that he doesn't obey perfectly. We don't obey perfectly. And we regularly sin against our Father, don't we? So they are in debt to God. He's worthy of perfect love and obedience, but we fail to imitate our Father. So we must confess this sin. Our sin actually causes us to not enjoy fellowship with God. So we must confess our sins and ask Him for forgiveness. The good news is, is He's always ready with open arms, wide open to forgive us. Isn't that a good father? I don't know about you, but our earthly fathers don't always do this. I know that we don't always do this as earthly fathers, do we? Our parents, our children come to us and say, hey, I'm sorry. And we say something like, well, you should be. (laughs) If you wouldn't do that, we'd be fine. You understand that you need to do this, 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 and this. What should we do? They come crying and confessing their sin and say, I'm sorry. We should open our arms and go, come, thank you, I love you, 
and don't give them a four-hour lecture every time on how they blew it. I know some of the parents are in the room going, "Uh uh-oh, that one's going to come back to bite. Trust me, I'm preaching to myself too. Our Heavenly Father says what? I love you. Come to me. So thankful for that, aren't you? Doesn't mean that he doesn't discipline us. Listen closely. (laughs) Because often he disciplines us to get us to really get the lesson. Because he loves us and wants us to depend upon him. Now, friends, Jesus gives a little phrase in this this prayer request that he's telling his disciples to pray. And it, it appears to be a little out of place. And to be perfectly honest, because we've turned the prayer into something that we should recite from verses 9 to 13, verses 14 and 15 just seem to not really flow either. You can see why somebody would add a doxology in here, because it had been turned into this prayer that's a formalized thing that we should just pray it. But these little side notes, and then this development in 14 and 15... Jesus is talking about the heart of prayer much more than the exact words that we pray. He's making a point. Notice the little phrase. He says, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Is he telling us that while we're praying, God... Please forgive me for my sins because after all, I've forgiven all those people that have sinned against me. That would miss the point, wouldn't it? It seems as though that would be almost like self-righteousness, wouldn't it? If we're not careful. So why does he turn to the believer's forgiveness, them seeking forgiveness, and giving forgiveness to others at the very moment they're asking for forgiveness from their father. Why? This is all about the heart of the praying person. That's what he's getting at. Listen closely. It's about our heart as we approach God the Father. What's going on in here as we approach him? Beloved, this little phrase, as we forget our debtors, implies a humble heart. A heart that recognizes we have sinned far greater against God than anything anyone has ever done to us. That's what's implied. We can't hold sin against others because we realize our debt to God is far greater than anything anyone has ever done to us. And that includes everybody in the room and every sin that's gone against you. We've all sinned against God far greater than anything anybody's ever done to any of us. Friends, an issue of sinful human heart, of the sinful human heart, is we expect everyone to pay their debts against us, but we always want God to ignore or forgive ours with no questions asked. Jesus is addressing that hypocrisy. I want everyone to listen closely. How can we, who have sinned countless times against our Heavenly Father, 
ask for forgiveness without realizing everything done to us pales in comparison. Doesn't it humble us? We go to God and say, I have nothing to say but forgive me. But aren't we often in our prayers, aren't we often, God, fix that person. That person did something to me. See, it's the humility that comes with understanding that my sin is far greater than anything you guys could do to me. That causes me to actually seek God genuinely. You know, Jesus develops his humble heart in the, the end, in verses 14 and 15. That's why he develops it more. He, he, he's like, hey, maybe I should give a couple explanations couple conditional statements here to just make sure you get it. <laughs> forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. Let me explain. That's what he does in verses 14 and 15. Notice in your Bible it says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Wow. That's pretty intense, isn't it? Jesus is making it clear. A humble heart that is forgiving towards others is a prerequisite for approaching God for forgiveness. We must have a heart that's not holding bitterness and anger towards others for us to humbly come before God and say, I need help. Will you forgive me? Again, there's two different types of forgiveness in the Bible. There's the positional forgiveness, which I don't think this is talking about, but relational forgiveness. Both are based on the same work, what Jesus did, his person and work, faith in him. But they're different. This section is obviously about relational. This can't be. We understand the Bible. We read our Bibles. We know Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, don't we? We know Titus 3, that this is not forgiveness to earn forgiveness. Everybody agrees with that, right? This is not forgive so that God will justify me, declare me right. It's not forgive so that we can have righteousness credited to our account. That would be totally contrary to God, the gospel message, wouldn't it? Think about this. If it meant forgive and earn forgiveness from God, then it'd be like paying $5 to pay off $5 billion. Do you understand if you said, hey, I forgive this person that offended me, so therefore I have somehow earned God's forgiveness? That's nuts. That would be crazy. Because I've sinned and you've sinned countless times and as we saw God's holy standard in chapter 5 was what if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart you're worthy of what hell forever if you lie one time the standard is what for God is perfection 
So if you have a hard time forgiving the $5 guy, does he, does he think, if okay, if I forgive this person for doing that, then yeah, now all my sins are paid for? That makes no sense. It's not what he's saying. He's talking about relational forgiveness, the new covenant relationship with God. That enjoyment of the Father. That is the relationship has already been established between us and God. We call him our heavenly Father. He's our Abba, isn't he? This relationship includes fellowship and abiding with him and his joy. And we enjoy abiding in his word. We depend on him and we enjoy him. And when we sin against him, we don't stop being his adopted children. Praise the Lord, right? However, the relationship is definitely strained, isn't it? He doesn't move away, but we don't enjoy him and fellowship with him like we should. This passage here is obviously a conditional statement. I want you to get it. It is conditional. Both of them are conditions. If you forgive, your father will forgive. If you don't, then you, he will not forgive your transgressions. So there is condition. You can't get away from that. But he must be talking about this relational forgiveness. That is that you won't enjoy your heavenly father if you have something against somebody else. Didn't he just previously say if you have a problem with somebody, go to them and get right with them. If you don't forgive, then he will not forgive your transgression. So there's a consequence to our relationship with God when we harbor bitterness towards others in our heart. The main problem is our heart, not God's heart. God still loves us infinitely more than we can comprehend. But we are consumed with our own pride and our own self-righteous position. And therefore we can't humbly go to God. Are you hearing me? Please get this. This is so important for everybody to understand. It's extremely hard for us to humbly approach our Heavenly Father with a heart that's bitter towards others. Look, folks. The worst thing that has ever happened to you pales in comparison to what you have done to God. He's an infinitely holy and righteous God. And our sin is countless. And one sin, one sin is worthy of an, worthy of an eternity separated from Him in a place called hell. Just the sin of ingratitude alone is far beyond our comprehension. I'm telling you, if there was one sin that I'm com convinced that I... I'm going to kill to the end of my day is this sin of ingratitude. Taking things for granted that God just gives me. I am a spoiled, rotten, adopted child. And this is shocking. He continues to feed me and give me breath and help my heart beat and do all these things. And yet the amount of gratitude I show to him is like, meh, compared to, to the moon. 
of what he's given me. That sin alone far contrasts anything that anybody's ever done to me. A just God requires perfect sacrifice, too, to pay for his sin. For sin, our sin. And what did he do? What did God the Father do? He gave his son to be crushed for our sin. Oh, that truth should resonate in your souls. Your ingratitude, your sin was why Jesus had to die. As we contemplate this great truth of what God has done for us, how in the world can we hold anything against anybody that's done anything to us? We can't. It was my sin that held him there. It was my sin that held him there. On the cross. So the father poured out his wrath on his own son to provide forgiveness for our debt? For sin? This is shocking love, isn't it? I love you guys. I love all of you with a deep, deep love in my heart. But I will not lay Caleb out on a cross for you. I can't even comprehend that love. Shocking, isn't it? This love and forgiveness works in our hearts. It causes us to see the debt others have run up against us as small. This is our heart as we approach our infinitely holy Heavenly Father. We actually come humbly to Him. We come with no bitterness towards others. We come seeing ourselves as the prodigal son. We come recognizing that we're the greatest sinner in the room. We come knowing that we're far greater than anything that anybody's ever done to me. I've done to God. And we know all our Father. And he is gracious to us when we approach him. So just understand, beloved. We can't approach God with humble hearts that he requires if we place ourselves in the role of Lord over others. We must see our sin as great and other sin against us as small. That's what he's getting at. That we're not even holding on to that because we see our sin and our need of the Father's forgiveness. This is how Stephen in Acts could say, as he's being stoned to death, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In Acts 7 60. I'm convinced one of our biggest barriers to our relationship with God is our bitterness towards others. Marriages have problems, and the reason why the marriages have problems is because they're not seeking God, and they're not praying, and they're not enjoying Him, but ultimately it's because their spouse is their enemy, and they're constantly bitter towards their spouse, and that's a problem. Where's the fellowship with the Lord in that? 
We elevate ourselves over others. And we come with pride and bitterness to our prayer closets. Oh, listen to me, beloved. Is it possible that part of the reason why we have a hard time praying is because we have hearts that aren't humble before God? I hear all too often, well, this is happening, and this is happening, and this is happening, and all these things bad have happened to me. As we will see in Matthew chapter 7, we can have a log in our own eyes and try to pick out specks in others. Listen closely, friends. It's all in the same sermon. I'm convinced that Jesus is tying all this together. He wants humble, dependent disciples. <laughs> Listen closely, beloved. It's also impossible to go to your father in prayer if you have a log in your eye. So we don't forgive others to earn the positional forgiveness we received at conversion. We forgive, though, so that our hearts are humble and ready to confess our sins and receive forgiveness we need to have a flourishing relationship with God. That's what all this passage is about. So the barrier to this petition for forgiveness is the heart that somehow thinks we are better than others and deserves to be paid back for wrongs done to us. Hear me, brothers and sisters. We fail to approach God with humble hearts necessary if we stand in judgment of everyone who has hurt us. The heart that is stuck on, this isn't fair or I deserve better, can't approach God humbly because they think they need something other than God and His forgiveness. Oh, that's so important. I hope you get that. If you're stuck looking at what other people are supposed to do to you, if you're stuck focused on that, you're not going to see your greatest need. Your greatest need is fellowship with the Father. Your greatest need is to delight and be satisfied with Him. If all you can do is look out and say, this person hurt me, or the world's not treating me right, you're dead. Because you're self-absorbed. And you don't see your sin as the greatest problem. Ooh. Profound. Just, he says it in just one little phrase. It took me, what, 13, 15, 20, 30 minutes to explain what he's getting at. That's the point. It's deep. Forgive us our debts. As we have forgiven our debtors. We'll close with that. We'll pick up next week. Are y'all having fun? What a prayer, right? That was, that's called, I, I failed, I failed expository preaching class. You know what that was? That was landing a plane like this. Crash. I'm done. It's past time. We're finished. You know, the great thing is, is that the word is good, isn't it? And we can pick up next week and 
grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord. Let's seek him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you have done in our lives. Lord, we humbly recognize that we are the greatest sinners. We understand that anything done to us pales in comparison to what we have done to you. And we ask for you to forgive us of our pride, our self-righteousness, our seeking of pleasure in the things of this world. And God, we pray that you will just give us our daily bread and that you will forgive us of our debts. Give us hearts, Lord, that are humble before you. We thank you, Father, that you love us. And then when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We praise you for our advocate with you, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a propitiation not for our sins, but for the sins of the world. We praise you, God, for all that you have done. We worship you. And we commit our day and our time and our week and our thoughts to you. In Jesus' name we pray.